I'm Shani. I'll be doing the Bible reading today. We are reading today from Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 1 to 19. You can follow along in your own Bibles, but it is printed in the booklet for you. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In the pride of your heart, you say, I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas. But you are a mere mortal and not a God. Though you think you are as wise as a God, are you wiser than Daniel? Is no secret hidden from you? By your wisdom and understanding, you have gained wealth for yourself and amassed gold and silver in your treasuries. By your great skill in trading, you have increased your wealth, and because of your wealth, your heart has grown proud. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Because you think you are wise, as wise as a God, I am going to bring foreigners against you, the most ruthless of warriors. They will draw their swords against your beauty and wisdom and pierce your shining splendor. They will bring you down to the pit, and you will die a violent death in the heart of the seas. Will you then say, I am a God, in the presence of those who kill you? You will be but a mortal, not a God, in the hands of those who slay you. You will die the death of the uncircumcised at the hands of the foreigners. I have spoken, declares the Sovereign Lord. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. You were a seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, carnelian, chrysolite and emerald, topaz, onyx and jasper, lapis lazuli, turquoise and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from Mount of God and I expelled you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. By your many sins and dishonest trade, you have desecrated your sanctuaries. So I made a fire come out of you, and it consumed you, and I reduced you to ashes on the ground, in sight of all who were watching. All the nations who knew you were appalled at you. You have come to a horrible end, and will be no more. I think it's inevitable, almost irresistible, that we all have a tendency to shrink God down from his true stature and majesty to something much, much smaller. It's partly, I think, that our imagination can't cope with God, something of that size, something of that, that uh, uh, power, someone much more knowledgeable than me, someone far beyond me, far beyond presidents and business moguls. But it's also that God is often hidden in his work. His power is usually not obvious and visible and detectable. Supernovas collide on the other side of the, the universe and we don't see the fingerprint of God there. And as our explorations go further and further and our research digs deeper and deeper, God is just the, left to explain the gaps in our knowledge and he shrinks into a smaller and smaller gap, as if God is absent and impotent. Does God really have anything to say to the USA, to Donald Trump? Does God say, have something to say to China or North Korea? Is God actually doing anything in our world? In fact, sometimes it almost feels like we give God his importance. 
We Christians, we decide to believe in him, to listen to him, and that's good and admirable, but billions, of course, in the world don't believe. Atheists and Hindus and apatheists, who are just apathetic, and to them, my God is just irrelevant. It's just my God. It's what I choose to believe. I was having a conversation with a man on Saturday night, a school teacher, and he said to me, Tim, you've got your faith and I've got my faith, and it's not the same as yours. And I think he expected that that close, would close the conversation. That by saying my God was just something I believed in, that would shrink my God down to something he didn't need to take seriously. That sort of happened with the same-sex marriage conversations as well, I think. It seems like we've been shut down as if we think God has got nothing to say. We just acquiesce to the pervading uh, uh, um, narrative that says... Uh, no one is allowed to impose any beliefs on anybody else and we just acquiesce and we shrink God down to almost nothing. Well, Ezekiel is a prophet sent to the exiles of Babylon. You might remember the timeline if you've been with us the last couple of weeks. The history of Israel goes up and down a fair bit, reaches a climax under David and Solomon where the promises of God made to Abraham come to a fulfilment. There's the kingdom of Israel in beauty and majesty, dominating its sphere of the world. But then it goes downhill for everybody. Judah, especially in the south, it does stay a while, but then the Babylonians conquer them. And Ezekiel prophesies to the exiles in Babylon across the other side of the world. And his main message is, whatever hopes you've got, you're thinking that somehow things will turn out all right. They are shattered by God. Your hopes in the temple, your hopes that Jerusalem still exists, that it's it's still carrying on somehow, God is going to smash it to pieces. Your hopeless hopes need to be decimated. But now in this section we're looking at today, Ezekiel's vision lifts from Israel, from Jerusalem, from the exiles he's sitting with over in Babylonia, to the nations around. This is the sort of structure of the book. Ezekiel's commission in the first three chapters and then he, he prophesies judgment on Jerusalem for a whole 21 chapters or so. And then at the beginning of chapter 24, things change. We're told at the beginning of chapter 24, let me read it to you. In the ninth year, in the tenth month of the tenth day, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, record this date, this very date, because the king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. The end is coming. It's already there around Jerusalem. Jerusalem is going to fall. And in chapter 33, in the twelfth year of our exile, in the tenth month on the fifth day, a man who had escaped from Jerusalem came to me and said, the city has fallen. So between the city being besieged and and news of the city's fall coming to Ezekiel, Ezekiel's vision lifts and he's given messages from God to the surrounding nations. And he, he prophesies the judgment of God on those nations. So he's over in Babylon, somewhere near Nippur, by the Kibar River. He's, most of his prophecies have been to Jerusalem, but oh, sorry, to the exiles about Jerusalem. But now he prophesies about Ammon and Moab and Edom and the Philistines and Tyre. Can you see them on the map? They're these little nations that surround Israel, surround Jerusalem. They've been allies of Jerusalem and Judah against Babylon. But now that Jerusalem falls, Ezekiel is sent to prophesy about them. 
But he doesn't actually go. It's one of these strange things. He prophesies about Ammon and Moab and Edom and what God's going to do, but he doesn't go to Ammon and Moab and Edom. He, he gives these prophecies to the people with him in Babylon, in exile with him. He thinks it's relevant to them. It's strange, but it's an important part of what is happening. Now, if you, in chapter 25, uh, these kingdoms are, are dealt with in sort of, you could say, um, clockwise direction from Ammon to Moab to Edom to Philistines and then to Tyre up in the north. Let me, let's read just one example of that because they're pretty similar actually. This is what the Sovereign Lord says about Ammon. Because you clapped your hands and stamped your feet. That's a way of celebrating, having a party. You stamp your feet, you clap your hands, you wave them all around, rejoicing with all the malice of your heart against the land of Israel. Therefore, I'll stretch out my hand against you and give you as plunder to the nations. I'll wipe you out from among the nations and exterminate you from the countries. I'll destroy you and you will know that I am the Lord. See, when Israel got smashed by Babylon, Ammon partied. She gloated. And God says, I'm going to bring on you what you're rejoicing in over Israel. But you might come back and say, hold, hold on, God. You're the one who sent destruction on Jerusalem. Why are you going crook on the Ammonites for joining in the celebration that Jerusalem's fallen? Ammon seems to be on God's side. But no, they're not. Because God takes no delight in his judgment. God does not delight in the death of a sinner. His judgment is something that he will bring, but he doesn't party over it. He's a reluctant judge. And so when others party over his judgment, he's opposed to them. He will crush them in that attitude and in that gloating. It's a timely reminder, isn't it? Us who might be tempted to gloat in the judgment of God on others, God takes no delight, and nor should we. But notice the purpose. His purpose is so that you will know that I am the Lord. All the nations will know that God really is God. They've dismissed Yahweh as Israel's puny God who can't even stand up to himself. But one day God will act. He'll show himself to be truly God when Ammon and Moab and Edom and Philistia get smashed. One day every nation, every person on this planet will know that God is God. And then we get a much longer section about Tyre and the king of Tyre. Um, and it goes from chapters 26 through to 28. We're going to focus on chapter 28 because here we're dealing with a very prominent city-state amongst the Phoenicians, but we see that what God has against the king of Tyre is actually something that affects the whole world, all of humanity. So if you've got chapter 28 there opposite the outline, uh, you'll be able to follow as we trace through this uh, prophecy about the king of Tyre. Because the king of Tyre has an enormous self-esteem problem. His problem is his enormous self-esteem. It's one of the the, uh, interesting things about the Bible. It has more problems with high self-esteem than low self-esteem. It sees that as much more significant and serious an issue. And the king of Tyre has got his self-esteem problem, his enormous self-esteem, his great sense of his own importance from his own achievements. 
Starts in verse 2. Say to the ruler of Tyre, this is what the sovereign Lord, in the pride of your heart you say, I am a god. I sit on the throne of a god in the heart of the seas. Tyre uh, was a, a, a city on the coast uh, of the Mediterranean Sea. It had an island off the coast which became the palace for the king because that was safe. It also became a centre of trade. Very uh, lucrative uh, um, uh, trade. It became a very prosperous little city-state, the most prosperous and prominent of all those in Phoenicia. But God says to him, you are a mere mortal and not a god, though you think you are as wise as a god. Are you wiser than Daniel? Is no secret hidden from you? By your wisdom and understanding, you've gained wealth for yourself. He succeeded. He set himself to become rich, and he's become rich. You've gained wealth for yourself and amassed gold and silver in your treasuries. By your great skill in trading, you've increased your wealth, and because of your wealth, your heart has grown proud. Success. See, success leads to a belief in our own self-importance, doesn't it? You know that feeling, don't you, when you succeed at something? It might be that exam that really challenged you and you aced it. Or that sporting competition where you won and you run off the pitch and you're just singing. It's euphoric. Maybe it's online games or poker or something else. But you know that feeling of success. It feels so good. And as you succeed, your confidence builds. And it builds and it breeds more confidence and often more success. And almost inevitably, that success sort of swells your heart, doesn't it? And as it swells your heart, it swells your head as well. We become proud. Have you ever met a successful, wealthy, humble person? There are some, but there's not many of them. Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Sheryl Sandberg, Mark Zuckerberg. No, they don't seem like that, do they? Now, we here at UWA, in some senses, are successful people, aren't we? We're more at that end of the spectrum than the other, at least so far. And it's so easy to get our sense of self-worth and importance from our success. We got the marks to get in. We're amongst the elite, the succeeders. Now, we've seen over the last few weeks that hope is an essential ingredient of life. Without hope... You're hopeless. You've got nothing to drive you forward, nothing to energise what you're going to do. You won't put effort into anything. And the normal hope that drives us is the hope of success, the hope of achievement. And so our lives tend to progress from one achievement to the next. And if we achieve, we, we, we go higher, we set our sights higher, we want to achieve more and graduate and get a job and get a career. If we fail... We tend to change the achievement we're looking for, we're, we're aiming for, we're, our ambition, to something that we can achieve in order to give us some sense of achievement, of self-worth. Now, what's wrong with that? It's fairly natural, isn't it? Well, yes and no. So you see what's happened to this king of Tyre? What's happened with his success? Well, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, verse 2, In the pride of your heart you say... I'm a god. Now, I'm not sure he actually literally said that, walk around handing out his business card, I'm a god. But that's how he thought about himself because in the end, his achievement, what he'd done, his success was the ultimate measure of his own worth. 
his striving. He wasn't striving for anything outside himself. All his striving was about himself. He was making himself a god. The ultimate measure of his own life, his own performance, his own success. But God says to him, no, you're not. You're a man. You're a human. You're not a god. In fact, the most monstrous action of humans, the most perverse action, is the refusal to be a creature of the creator, to pretend that we're the creator, insist on equality with the one who made us. And therefore, in verse 6, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Of course you think you're wise, as wise as, a, as wise as a God. I'm going to bring foreigners against you, the most ruthless of nations. They'll draw their swords against your beauty and wisdom and pierce your shining splendour. They'll bring you down to the pit. You will die a violent death in the heart of the seas. Will you then say, I'm a God, in the presence of those who kill you? You will be but a mortal, not a God, in the hands of those who slay. You will die the death of the uncircumcised at the hands of foreigners. God will be God, and the king of Tyre will not be God. God will act to bring the king of Tyre down, to expose his mortality, his humanity, his frailty. Some of you may be familiar with this man, Kerry Packer. He was a great media mogul of Australia. He built a very successful media empire. He was a huge man physically, and had huge success. His son James, who is more in the news these days, because Kerry is dead, said that when he was growing up, he was terrified of his dad. His dad was almost like a god to him. He was such a, a huge personality that dominated his whole life. He was absolutely terrifying. But when Kerry Packer was dying of kidney failure, he finally became human. He finally became what he really was. And for James, not so terrifying anymore. And when somebody puts a sword to your throat, you realise that you're just a human. <laughs> Whatever your achievements have been, you're not a god. It's a think that I'm a god. That my life and my importance is all determined by my achievements. is simply self-delusion. Just a tip, if, if other people are sort of like that to you, if you're ever tempted to think that other people are like a god, and it sort of happens, I remember when I was interviewed for some jobs as an engineer, I went up to one interview, I was sat in a seat, and opposite me there, were a, there was a huge board table, and behind the table were seven men, all dressed up in suits, looking like they owned the world. I was terrified. They seemed like gods. They controlled my destiny, it would seem. Well, a friend of mine gave me a tip. He said, when you feel like that, just imagine them in their underwear. It sort of it blows it away, doesn't it? I think God would say, imagine them at their funeral. They're not a God anymore, are they? They're mere mortals. And all of us are mere mortals. They're not gods. You're not a God. But then in verses 11 and 12... Ezekiel changes tack and he takes up what is called a lament. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It's a different angle on the king of Tyre. This rich, proud, successful achiever is not to be envied. He's a tragedy to be mourned. 
And the form of the lament is, this is what you were, but this is what you've become. Uh, Listen to it. You were the seal of perfection, verse 12, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. Carnelian, chrysolite, emerald, all those other ones. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created. Who is this? Well, some people think that there's a sort of secret story to this. And this is actually about Satan, an angel that fell. But notice in verse 12, it's clearly about the king of Tyre. This is a lament about the king of Tyre. You were the seal of perfection. But there is a sort of secret story in it. But it's not about Satan. Did you recognise who it is? Who was in the Garden of Eden? Who was on the mountain of God, poetically, with God, in his very presence, where he rules from? You recognise that person, don't you? Who was the perfection of beauty, blameless in all his ways? That's Adam, isn't it? That's Adam back in the Garden. That's Genesis 1 and 2, all over again. What's, what's God saying? Well, the king of Tyre might be the king of Tyre, but essentially he's a human being. He's a member of the human race. He's another in the family and likeness of Adam, just like you and I are. And what were humans created to be? Well, we were created to be wise and beautiful, to be good, to be with God, to be in harmony and fellowship with God. We were given enormous significance and importance, created in the very image of God himself. That's what Adam was created in, and that's what the king of Tyre is, by the gift of God. But that's not the way it is now. Verse 15, you are blameless in your ways from the day you were created uh, till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God. I expelled you from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendour. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. See, he weaves together things that details that are about the king of Tyre and details that are about Adam and what happened when Adam sinned. When he said, I wanted to be God. I wanted to determine good and evil. I don't want God to be God. I want to be God. And that is what the king of Tyre has done in his wickedness. Both became proud, wicked. They overreached. They wanted more. They grabbed for more. They thought more highly of themselves than was real. The king of Tyre, his storyline is not just a personal story, a unique story. His story is the story of Adam, which is the story of humanity. It's the story of pride and arrogance, wanting to be God. And I think when you reflect on it, pride and arrogance are the underpinnings of almost all evil in the world. Wars, violence, rape, greed, deceit, racism. It all comes from pride, doesn't it? That's what infects our hearts. That's what bubbles up. That's what expands our heads to be what they shouldn't be. His story is the story of humanity. And his tragedy is the tragedy of humanity. His tragedy is my tragedy and your tragedy. 
Because the tragedy is that what he lost by setting out to make himself somebody was far better than what he ever got by his achievements. All his achievements, all his wisdom, all his wealth was far less than God had originally made him. He was the perfection of beauty. He, he was covered with, with, uh, uh, with wealth, carnelian and chrysolite. He was there in the garden of God in the best possible life he could ever have. And he thought, this isn't good enough for me. I want something better. I want to grab for my own life to be God. And even this man, with all his achievements, much more than you or me, what he achieved was far less than what he lost, what God had given him initially. What did the king of Tyre do? Well, in his arrogance, he thought he was a god. He thought his achievements could elevate him to be the master of his destiny and the measure of his own worth. And it was wrong. It was evil. And it was pathetic. So imagine for a moment that he succeeded beyond his wildest dreams. Imagine you succeed in your dreams, in your hopes, in what you want to, want to achieve and succeed. Imagine you really do. You're, you're the most beautiful person in the world, buffed and clever and wealthy beyond imagination. Well, that would give you some sense of satisfaction, wouldn't it? Some sense of worth. Well, yes, but it only remains impressive if you keep God out of the picture, doesn't it? But actually the lament is, whatever you might make yourself, you will be far less than God has already made us. It's like exchanging a Ferrari for a Hyundai. Prada for Target. That's what we've done, even in our best. Far less than God made us and far less than God gives us in his son, Jesus Christ. Do you know how precious the children of God are to God? that he would send his own son to die for them. That's how we are loved. His redemption was costly, determined, planned, destined in the future for all that verses 12 and 13 is about, to be a seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, in Eden, in the garden of God. That, that's our destiny. That's what God gives us. We don't get it by our achievements. He hands it to us as a gift. So all that you or I could ever achieve, is far less than God gives us. And so we need to see that, that hope of success, that drivenness to achieve for what it really is. Hopeless hope in comparison. And you see what happens? When I get bigger in my own eyes, as I get proud, what happens to God in my eyes? He gets smaller, doesn't he? He shrinks down to something that I could fit in my pocket. As I inflate with pride, I muscle in to take God's place and I treat God as far less than the God he really is. And God won't have it. If that's what I want to do, he'll shrink me back to what I am, a mere human creature. Not because he feels threatened. No. Look how high he started us from. He's not threatened by our ex exaltation. He just won't have it. It's wrong. It's not reality. So, let's think about Ezekiel, Jesus and us. I don't know how much you know of history, of places like Ammon and Edom and Moab and Philistia. Let me ask you something. Have you met a Moabite lately? Had lunch with an Edomite? 
No, I don't think so. Why? Because they're not there anymore. God said to them, I will be God. You shrink me down to nothing, I will shrink you down to nothing. And he did at the hands of the Babylonians. Tyre, that proud city-state with a king who thought he was everything. Well, Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon came and besieged the city for 13 years, brought it to its knees, ended up with a shadow of itself, retreating to the island fortress off the coast, till Alexander the Great came along. He demolished all the suburbs of Tyre on the mainland, used the rubble to build a causeway out to the island. He he barricaded the, the port so nobody could escape, and finally smashed Tyre to nothing killed everybody living in it, more than 7,000 people, and left it as nothing more than a fishing village. God said he would act so that all would know that he alone is God, whether they're Christian or not Christian, whether they believe in him or don't believe in him, whether they've heard of Christ or not. All are accountable to the creator, to their creator, for how they live especially for their arrogance, for thinking, I'm a God. This is my life. I'll live it the way I please for my success and my own sense of importance. All the nations will know that God is God. Those who shrink God down, he won't be shrunk. He won't go away. He's like gravity. He's just a brute fact of reality. But even more, God has shown himself by coming in the person of Jesus. If if the nations will know that God is God, well, one of the ways he's done it is by actually coming and visiting planet Earth. And this is how John summarises it. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Jesus, God the Son, came into the world. But people loved darkness rather than light. They were like the king of Tyre. They just wanted their own life. They didn't want God intruding and, and putting them back into their right place because their works were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light, doesn't come into the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, comes out into the open, the reality of God, so that it may be clearly seen that whatever they do, whatever their achievements are, they've been carried out in God, not independently, not their own success, all done on their own so they can feel important, but only done because God enables us, God energises us, God allows us, and calls us to do things that are worth doing. But there's more. Jesus on the cross, unlike the king of Tyre, who said, I'm a God. Well, he was God. Yet he didn't, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held onto, to be exploited, but instead emptied himself, the exact opposite of the king of Tyre, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself to become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He didn't set out to achieve and succeed for himself. He didn't have that achievement mentality. In Jesus, we see that for what it is. Jesus blazed a very different path to the king of Tyre, to the path of Adam. In humility and obedience and trust of God, he gave his life for you and me. And the Father bestowed on him, blessed him with every honour imaginable. 
And so the question I want to ask you, and I ask myself is, whose steps will you walk in? The king of Tyre or the king of kings? The king of Tyre who exalted himself and was humbled by God? Or the king of kings who humbled himself and was exalted by God? They're very different paths, aren't they? But each day we keep making choices as to which path we're on. Am I on the achievement path where my sense of worth is dependent on what I do and what I achieve and I'm driven to achieve more and more? Or am I on Jesus' path, trusting God, living a life humbly obedient to him, knowing I am but a human, but a human that God, in his kindness, in his lavish generosity, exalts to be his child? Which will you choose? Amen. Yeah, we've got a bit of time if you want to ask questions. Yeah. Yeah, um, in verse 3, it mentions being wiser than Daniel. Is that, like, is that a common saying at the time, like a standard by which people were measured? Uh, thanks, Woody. Um, Daniel, this Daniel is probably not the Daniel of the book of Daniel in our Bibles. This was said before he became prominent. Um, We know from a couple of other references, both inside the Bible and I think outside, that there was another proverbial guy called Daniel who was proverbial for his wisdom. And so it's probably a reference to that person. I I can't remember the details now. Uh, A commentary will give it to you if you want to place it up, or I can if you want me to. Johnny? So Johnny's question is, isn't it sort of appropriate to feel satisfaction when people are bought low? Um, Yeah, I think that's a a fair question. And uh, there is some sense in which that is true, that that when when God brings people low who who are proud or whatever, who are evil, um, that that goodness and God are vindicated. And there's something right about that. But I presume that what God says is he finds no pleasure in their death, in their suffering, in inflicting it on them. It's right, and he will do it, in one sense, gladly. It's not as if he's got to have his arm twisted. He will do it from his own motivation. But at the same time, there's a reluctance to it. Now, putting those two things together is, is a little bit complex. It's okay. Um, God isn't simplistic in the way that he interacts with us and with evil. But to just gloat about it is not like God at all, is what, is what Ezekiel is, is saying. Does that make some sense? Yeah, thank you. Okay, well, thank you. If you... Ah, like, um, I just wanted to say, like, with um, heaven, you know what I mean? You know, everyone's going to be made like Jesus. Yeah. You know what I mean? We're going to be like our Jesus is, you know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. Like, Yep. Yes. Yeah. And thank you. Yep. Ta. That stands.